Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today's program begins, as we have recently, by reminding you that we have a volunteer, Charlie Fabian, who is more than willing to accept and listen to and pass on to us your suggestions for topics and approaches you'd like to see on this program. You can reach him by charlie.info438 at gmail.com. Once again, charlie.info438 at gmail.com. Today's program is going to examine briefly major developments that have happened in two important countries. Argentina and Germany that will shape the whole world in the years to come. We're also going to talk about graduate students joining unions in what is nothing short of a real nationwide campaign that is successful. We're going to talk about the economics of chocolate, the meaning of the category profit, and the passing of Henry Kissinger. Much to do Let's get right to it. I'm going to begin with Argentina. Argentina very recently had an election and elected a new government led by an Argentinian version of Donald Trump. His name is Javier Millet, and he is what would probably be called here in the United States a libertarian. He dresses in a strange way, talks in a strange way is a character. If you don't like him, a clown. If you do, a savior should sound familiar, and it presents extraordinary problems. Why was he elected? Well, to answer that question, you quickly look at certain economic statistics. 40% of Argentina is officially listed as living in poverty. The inflation rate at the time of the election was 140% per year. That means prices are doubling, more than doubling, in a year, in the last year. Argentina is one of the most indebted countries in the world, and the debt it has facing it is unpayable, and everybody knows it. So there's a long history in Argentina. On the one hand, it has been one of the more developed industrial countries in South America, enjoying periods of genuine growth and prosperity. On the other hand, it is rigidly capitalistic. Small number of people own most of the industrial and even the agricultural property. It is reproducing its inequality. That too should be familiar. And it has been unwilling to budge from that structure of its economy, trying to solve its problems by ever larger rounds of borrowing uh, from the rest of the world and then proving itself unable to pay back. It's a sad story. It has become a tragic story. And it's not clear that more lending is going to be available given that history. So along comes a character. Javier Millet. He looks at all this and says what the people of Argentina obviously already know. It's a mess. 
the conventional political operatives have shown themselves to be good at staying in power, but not good at solving the problems. For an audience in the United States, this too should look very familiar and give you an obvious hint into the appeal of Donald Trump. And what does Mr. Millay do? Well, he has to prove that he's different from conventional politics. That's his only chance. Mr. Millay had to do the same. I'm going to be different. And look, the way I talk is different. The way I dress is different. The way I talk about anything and everything that comes up is different. One thing you can be clear on, I'm different. And that's a good political ticket. And that's what he did. And that's why he won. Didn't win by all that much. Had to have a runoff because he didn't win overwhelmingly in the first round. But he's the new leader. And he has spent the first few days showing us two things. Number one, it is, in fact, business as usual. Nothing much has changed. Nothing much looks like it's going to change. The people he appointed to top economic posts are the conventional advisors. Indeed, many of them have been advisors to earlier governments. Turns out his showy costumes, his outrageous remarks are mostly a piece of political theater, as with Trump. See, the problem is neither the right wing nor the left wing of conventional politics has the answer. That's because both of them have always been cheerleaders for capitalism. They disagree on how to support that capitalism. They disagree with the details of that capitalism, but they do not disagree with keeping the system the same. And that's the problem. And that's why they haven't improved the situation. There's nothing about Mr. Javier Millet that suggests anything different. We're going to have a right wing crazy. He wants to end the currency of Argentina and use the U.S. dollar. He wants to push away from China. He wants to push away from other countries that he depends on and that the country depends on and from whom they cannot push away without plunging their economy into much worse trouble than they're already in. He wants to maybe do what? Go so extreme that somehow something comes out of it. Libertarians are like that. Get rid of the bad government that interferes and we, the private sector, will just flower. They keep saying that. It never happens. What they do, if they're lucky, is have a few, maybe, few years of economic growth. Then all the problems catch up with them, and we're back to square one, and they look ridiculous. You know, like Margaret Thatcher and the conservatives in England, and I could go on, but you know the story. It's sad what Argentina is going through. The only question is, Will an opposition arise, genuinely willing to go beyond capitalism to solve the problems that capitalism has shown us it cannot solve? And then we turn to Germany. How remarkable. Germany is in trouble. The, the number one economy of Europe, the engine of European growth over the last 20, 30 years, 
is in deep trouble. Its economy, as I speak to you, is in recession or very close to it. It's now the worst performing economy in Europe. It used to be the number one best performing. What has brought Germany down? Well, several things. Number one, the tremendous boost in the cost of energy. Germany is a manufacturing, exporting powerhouse. It needs massive amounts of energy to run its particular economic system. Its agriculture is secondary. Its services are, relative to what has happened in other advanced countries, small. It's a manufacturer who needs energy. And they got it in the last 30 years. And they were successful because they got really cheap energy. Oil and gas from, yeah, you guessed it, Russia. And when the Ukraine war broke out, and when the United States demanded that the Europeans get in behind the Ukrainians and demanded that they sanction Russia and cut off purchases of oil and gas, it hit Germany way harder than it hit the United States, which has its own sources of energy, which Germany did not and does not have. Number two, Germany absorbed East Germany in the unification of Germany. And it used up East German labor, integrating it to get a cheap, highly educated, trained labor force through that unification. That also was a strength. But that's over. There's no more East Germany to absorb. They've done that. And the only way they can grow a labor force, because they have a problem of people aging out of the labor force, you know, like the United States and many other countries also has, Japan and so on. So where are they going to get labor without which they can't be Germany's powerhouse, excuse me, Europe's powerhouse economy? So they need to open the floodgates to immigration which their leaders have done. And they have a huge immigrant population, not just the Turkish minority uh, of origin from Turkey, but more and more, they're the leaders. Let the, let the immigrants come from the Middle East, which is being destroyed as we speak. But that produces tension with German workers who see the influx of European immigrants as a way to keep their wages from rising, to make the difficulties of the German economy borne by the wages of the native working class, and they're not happy, and they push back. And one of the most powerful growing political parties in Germany, which, by the way, is against German support of Ukraine, is the party that is most loudly anti-immigrant. And they're wanting to change their pensions so old people have to stay in the labor force. They're taking new steps to facilitate women leaving the household and coming in. They're trying to desperately solve their problems. Too much money for energy, which they can't or won't do anything about. Too much trouble about the immigrants and too much pushback from the working class that doesn't want to pick up the bill. The German capitalist system has worked its way into a dead end, and it is therefore unable to carry Europe, 
which is why the world is more and more polarizing into the United States and its allies and the Chinese and its. Because any chance for Europe to play the kind of role it once did in world affairs is being undermined by that which they cannot criticize or face, their dependence on a capitalism whose problems are overwhelming it. Let me turn next to the news from the Laney Graduate School at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. They just had a vote among their graduate students, pro or con, the union unionization of those students. It was a strong fight. It has been going on since 2016. That's seven years of struggle to build a union at that Southern University. So they finally had a vote, and here were the results. Just shy of 60% of the eligible graduate students voted, 909 in favor of the union, 73 against. When I say it wasn't even close, well, I gave you the numbers so you understood what I meant. It's an alliance of Emory Unite, the name the students took, and the SEIU, Service Employees International Union, a major international union here in the United States. I want to just list to you the other universities that have done what Emory just did, all in the very few last years. Here we go. Duke University, Northwestern University, Georgetown University, New York University, Johns Hopkins University, Brown University, the University of Chicago, and the University of Southern California. Unionization is spreading across the universities and colleges of the United States in a way we've never seen before. We're at the end of the first half of today's program. Stay with me. We have many more updates waiting for you when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I want to talk to you briefly about something that normally is a source of pleasure to me, to you, and to most other folks. Chocolate. Extraordinary product of the land in the form of the cacao bean and something we have all enjoyed for most, if not all, of our lives. I wanted to take a look after some folks brought to my attention the problem that the chocolate industry has. It is a capitalist industry. What does that mean? It means it maximizes profit. Human beings go into the chocolate industry, growing the beans, processing the beans, sweetening the beans, adding other products to enhance the beans as a commodity they can sell, transporting the beans. You get the picture. And they do that not because they may or may not like chocolate, but because it's a way of making a buck, of making profit off of enterprise. And I want to look at that part of it. And in part, I do it because it's an illustration of how capitalism has always worked, how it is still working, 
how the problems it once admitted and told us it had put behind it haven't been. They're right there, and they're there all the time. But I also wanted to do it around something everybody touches and feels, and in this case, eats, namely chocolate. And I was helped in this research by a recent issue of a British journal called The Ethical Consumer. So if you would like more details about this, just check out the September 2023 issue of The Ethical Consumer, which is available online, etc. First of all, who produces the plant from which chocolate comes? It's mostly Africa. Almost two-thirds of the total chocolate consumed in the world originates in Africa. And two countries in particular dominate the chocolate business, Ghana and the Ivory Coast, two important African countries. Together, 64% of the world's chocolate. Another 15% comes from South America, and most of the rest of it from Asia. Europe, North America, and Japan consume chocolate, but they do not produce it. Now, the conditions of the farmers, the ones who raise the chocolate plant, who harvest the chocolate beans, they get between 6 and 11% of the price of the chocolate you buy. That chocolate bar, that chocolate confection, whatever it is, only six cents on the dollar goes to the farmer. So for example, 50% of the Ivory Coast farmers whose product is chocolate live below the global poverty line. This is a legacy of colonialism. When the African countries were taken over by the Europeans using force and violence to subjugate these countries, in almost every case, the local people had diverse economies. Focusing them on something was a colonial strategy. Focusing something that the colonial masters could profit from, could harvest, low price, and then sell around the world high price. That was the attractive proposition for many colonial powers. Britain was the colonial dominant power in Ghana. France was the colonial dominant power in what they called the Côte d'Ivoire. Okay, here comes the punchline. To make a buck, it became necessary for the farmer, for the processor, for the shipper to find the cheapest possible labor to do the work. And they found it in children. That's right. You may think that decades ago, we here in the United States outlawed child labor, as was done in many countries. But if you thought that ended child labor, well, then you are naive. It didn't. It just made it necessary to hire the children somewhere else where the laws didn't apply. You couldn't do it so readily anymore in Western Europe and North America. 
although heaven knows it still goes on. But it was then outsourced. The colonial countries did it in the colony because the law prevented it from being done at the home country, at least more so. And chocolate is no exception. So the research has been done. Where is child labor? Six in 10 uh, cocoa-growing households are estimated to use child labor in the Ivory Coast and in Ghana. Chocolate is often mixed with palm oil. Palm oil uses, you guessed it, children to do a lot of the work of harvesting and growing the the palm oil. I'm going to read you a list of companies because you know them. And these are the companies that have now been shown to use horrible Chinese, excuse me, child labor and poverty to bring you the chocolate you would like otherwise to enjoy. Here we go. Cadbury, Ferrero Rocher, Galaxy, Green and Black, Kinder, Kit Kat, Love Coco, Maltesers, Mars, Milka, Nestle, Smarties, Thornton's, and Toblerone. Think about it. You may not hear the child crying at the other end of the table where you eat, but because you don't hear it, and because there are screens between you and it, doesn't mean it isn't there, and doesn't mean it isn't crying, and doesn't mean that we all are going to be affected by that sooner or later, directly or indirectly. My next update has to do with profit. More nonsense is said and spoken and written about profit than any other topic in economics that I know of. Let's be real clear and real simple about profit. Profit is the name we give to one category of what happens to the revenue when any company, any enterprise, sells whatever it produces. So, for example, let me give use the example of chocolate. Part of what you pay for when you pay money to get a chocolate bar on your way home today, part of that money goes to pay the farmer who produced the bean. Part of it goes to the company that transported it. Part of it goes to the company that processes the the cocoa, mixes it with palm oil, sweetens it, and makes it ready for us to consume it. And that money that flows into the hands of all those businesses is further divided by each of those businesses into three parts. One part pays for the tools, equipment, and raw materials they use up. Another part pays the wages of whatever workers as I explained, many of them children, who get a wage. And the third portion of the revenue of every company goes to the profits of the people who own and run the company. That's all profit is. The share of the revenue that goes to those who own and operate the enterprise. The other shares go to the workers as wages and to the providers of inputs to the production process. There it is. Profit is what the reward is, if you like, for the people who own and operate the business. 
why am I telling you this? Because the people who want you to appreciate and support capitalism have a story they'd like you to believe. Here's the story. If businesses go about maximizing their profit, doing everything they can to make the business profitable, which, by the way, most businessmen and women will tell you is what they learned at business school and what they are trying to do. But let's be clear. If that's what a business does, it is privileging the owner and the operator making what they get, the profit, the most important thing for the company to do, whereas paying wages and paying the people they buy inputs from is a necessary but hardly desirable thing to maximize. No company wants to maximize its wage bill. It wants to minimize it. No company wants to maximize what it shells out for inputs. It wants to minimize that. But the one kind of revenue it wants to maximize is the one that goes to the smallest group of people, the people who own and operate the enterprise, the board of directors, the major shareholders, the family that started it, whoever that small group of people is who get the profit. To tell us, as the economics profession has been doing for a century in this country, that profit maximization in some magical way is what we all want business to do is nonsense. Most of us are not profit earners. Most of us are wage earners. The vast majority of us are wage earners. According to the U.S. Census, employers those are the ones who get the profits, are 3% of the population. We are the rest. To maximize profit is to maximize what gets into the hands of a small minority, which no democratic economic system would ever dream of making the point and purpose of enterprise. No, no, no. Profit maximization is a thin disguise for having the people who own and operate industry make sure it takes care of them first, foremost, and who cares about all the rest. When it's profitable, they fire you. What that does to you, not their concern. It improves the profits. If they use a machine or they move production, they do it. Their stocks go up, the rich celebrate. You. You don't have a job anymore. Your community has lost the source of its tax revenue because the business went belly up. Mm, that's the reality, and you actually know it. Don't be fooled. Profit maximization is a plan, a program, and a slogan invented by four capitalists and not for you and me. My final update today is to record the passing of Henry Kissinger. As it happens, Henry Kissinger's grandparents and mine had origins in the same small German town. My father, long past, once wrote a letter to Henry Kissinger, taking him to task for having caused the brutal deaths of hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, of people in Cambodia and Laos as part of the American effort in the war in Vietnam. 
often led and advised by Kissinger. For the record, besides all those people killed, the war, from the American point of view, was lost. Vietnam became a communist party-run society, which was the opposite of the American goal. Mr. Kissinger is a hero for people who behave in that way, who can find horror only in their political opponents, and when practicing it themselves, think it's somehow honorable because the blood isn't theirs. Thank you for your attention. And as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.